time of my sermon is a little short, so I'm going to add a little personal testimony to the beginning here. Uh, I grew up in the Methodist Church, and we had a good pastor who preached the gospel. And in confirmation class, he challenged us to read a chapter of the Bible a day, and I started doing that. Before high school, I had been through the whole Bible uh, before I was done, done with high school. Uh, he had confirmed us, but uh, at Midwinter Youth Institute, Institute up in Moorhead, my sister and I were standing there, and uh, he came up and said, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? And we looked up at him and smiled, and we knew we hadn't. Uh, and he said, don't miss it, kids. Don't miss it. Uh, I, I continued to uh, read the Bible, and I knew uh, that God wanted to, uh, that Jesus had died for my sins, and, and uh, he'd risen again from the dead. And he wanted me to come to him. Uh, and I tried to clean up my life so I'd be good enough to do that. It didn't work. But uh, I graduated from high school, went to junior college, Fergus Falls Junior College. Uh, and uh, that year, uh, I realized that I didn't have to earn my way. I could give my life to Jesus. I was prayed for and on the way driving home that night by by that telephone pole by Hillcrest, uh, God came into my heart. I realized I had given him control of my heart, and he took over, and I had a peace with God that I had never known before. And I realized I had been fighting with God. I didn't know that. But that peace has stayed with me all my life. Thank God for that. At junior college there, I... In December, I, I came to the Lord, and, and I thought I should do something. So I, uh, during that winter, we started Bible study, and we had a few kids in the classroom in there, and a few guys. And uh, we studied material from Athletes in Action, and that's how it went. I was in the hallway one day at, at college, and uh, my classmate, Jerry's brother, came up from philosophy class, and he uh, presented to me the... Epicurean Dilemma. See if we can get this. The Epicurean Dilemma. If God is just, he cannot be benevolent. If God is benevolent, he cannot be just. Um, to be just, he must punish every sin. To be benevolent, he must forgive sins. And he can't be both. God is holy and just. From, from this comes his wrath against sin. I looked up wrath in the New Bible Dictionary, and the writer of the article, R.V.G. Trasker, says that God's wrath is not like man's, which is wayward, fitful, or spasmodic. It is as consistent an element in his nature as is love. Wrath is the permanent attitude of a holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil. Not merely cause and effect, but a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into mere sentimentality. God's wrath is always tempered with mercy. 
uh, even when he pronounces a sure judgment upon his people Israel, there's always an, ex an exception granted for repentance, even if it is not met mentioned. Trasker warns for a sinner, however, to trade upon his this mercy, as Romans 2.5 says, will store up wrath for himself against the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Exodus 34, 6, and 7, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And he did. He, he, he said, you can't look right at me. Uh, man can't see me and die, or he will die. Uh, so he put him in the cleft of the rock, and he passed by him, and after he passed, Moses could look at his glory. But as he passed, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here you have both his benevolence and his wrath. How can they exist together? How can God say he will forgive sin, but then say but he will by no means clear the guilty? In Luke 13, Jesus gives the parable of the narrow door. Now please turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 13, or you, it's written on the bulletin. You can read it on the bulletin. Uh, I was reading ahead for in Luke for our small group Bible study, and we've gone from 1 John into Luke now. And uh, I want you to know that you are welcome to come to our Bible study. We've got room for you. Uh, we meet on Wednesday night at 6.30 at uh, Garland Carlson's, and uh, we, we study the Bible, and we have prayer for one another, and we're usually done out the door by 9 o'clock. So we have room for you. Please come uh, Wednesday, 6.30. Luke 13. When I read this before, I thought, well, this is just a sort of a rehash of the narrow gate found in uh, Matthew. And it's like that, but I noticed it is strikingly different. It's not the same. Verse 22 in Luke 13, he went on, I'm reading from Revised Standard Version, it might not be quite the same as yours. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying through, toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who, saved, who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the householder has risen up and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There you will weep and gnash your teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And men will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, 
Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Uh, in this passage, there are a series of warnings, that, and he concludes with, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The ESV commentary alerts us to this key theme in Luke, the great reversal taking place in the world, the proud being brought low, the humble being exalted. It's scary to think of being shut out of the kingdom. You will remember that last week, Pastor Eric warned that the time allowed for us to repent will one day come to a close. And besides this, not one of us even has the assurance that we will be here tomorrow. Though time to repent will run out for us, we are also reminded in John 6:37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives, if I have that, all that the Father gives me I, will come to me, and him who comes to me I will not cast out. I was in Canada at the Blackfoot Reservation with my concession stand. Uh, my neighbor was a Blackfoot who was uh, selling french fries and gravy. And uh, I had as my goal to talk to uh, business owners about the gospel. And uh, in the brief time that I have to talk with the, with the other concessionaires. So I went over to him and I handed him a tract and said a few words about it. And he said, uh, you know, when it all boils down to it, his background was in the Blackfoot uh, religion. When it all boils down to it, all religions are basically the same. Well, I disagreed with him, but I, I thought about later what I should have said. Christianity is different in that it has a Savior who died to save us from our sins. Uh, no other religion has that. No other religion includes a payment for sins by which we can be forgiven. No other religion can have a God who is just and benevolent at the same time. Check out Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is what we're ultimately saved from. Uh, Mary was told, you shall call his name Jesus, for you shall save his people from their sins. What, is the, what are the wages of sin? Death. Uh, what happens after death? Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Do I have that there? No. Uh, what happens after judgment? Matthew 25.31 and following uh, says one of two things. Either uh, come ye blessed into the kingdom, or depart from me you cursed into the eternal fire. That is what uh, God's wrath is poured out on men, on evildoers. So, when we are saved from our sins, we are saved from God's wrath. If we believe in Jesus, we will, we will be saved by his blood from the wrath of God. This is the solution to the Epicurean dilemma. God punishes every sin, 
and wants to forgive all who believe and follow him. And this is evidenced in Ezekiel 33:11. He says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God punishes every sin, but Christ is the substitute for everyone who believes. He takes the punishment of God's justice so we might receive his benevolence and follow him. This is described in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's our substitute. The familiar hymn puts it this way. We sang it this morning. And when I think that God, his, love, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross... My burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. What must we do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It costs you nothing. It's a free gift. I thought I had to clean up my life, but it's free. I've finally discovered that. It costs you nothing but it costs you everything. He who finds his life will lose it, and who, he who loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will find it. I'm mixing in another verse there in the Gospels, but he, finds, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Check out uh, Luke, Luke 14.33. Um, so therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It costs everything, and it costs nothing. I imagine that in the eternal counsels of God, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit uh, planned for the salvation of mankind. And the conversation might have gone something like this. We need to attract those who are humble enough to recognize that God is the center of the universe and central to it and not themselves. We need to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. How can we do that without the proud catching on and climbing over the wall into the sheepfold? Let's make it simple. So simple that only those who truly seek God will get it. Here's the plan. He who believes in Jesus will be saved. The proud and boastful won't go for it. They'll say, give me some credit here. I know there isn't any such thing as a free lunch. Too simplistic. Simplistic? Simple, yes. Simplistic, no. And in this case, there is a free lunch. And no, you don't get any credit. It's absolutely free and costs you nothing, though it costs God a lot. It's a free gift that you cannot repay. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 
23 and 25. But we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Simple. But a lot of men and women, I'm afraid, don't believe it. Those who believe will be forgiven. For the unbelieving, God will by no means clear the guilty. They will be left outside the narrow door. I was at the Richland County Fair in uh, Sydney, Montana with my concession stands, waiting for breakfast at one of the cookhouses. Around the corner, seated in the open window, was the owner of the carnival, and he was telling me how many problems he has had lately had, and they were all bunched up together. I told him, God's trying to get your attention. And he responded with, well, he's got it. What does he want? Well, I've thought about what to say later again. And uh, I, I should have said, uh, uh, you're asking the wrong person. Uh, if, you really, if he's really got your attention, you'll ask him. And then you'll listen. Maybe uh, after prayer, maybe uh, listening to sermons, but first and foremost, you've got to look for it. It is your most direct connection with God, his revealed word. And as you read that, you should ask the two questions that Paul asked when he was converted on the road to Damascus. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? Is God trying to get your attention? Does he have it? Perhaps you are one of those who are in danger of being left outside the narrow door. After the service, I'm sure that uh, any member of the leadership team or one of your Sunday school teachers would be happy to uh, sit down with you and show you the simple steps it takes to enter through that door, the simple steps of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ who died for your, your sins and ro rose again from the dead. Get together with one of us and uh, we'll pray with you. Uh, if you wish, come to the front row after the service and sit down and we'll come over there and share and pray with you there. And then make it a daily habit of reading the scriptures and asking the two questions that Paul asked. Who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? I close with uh, Jude 24 and 25. Think about this. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.